0: Merry Christmas. hope it's been a good Christmas season for you. Maybe this will be part of what has been a good Christmas season in your life as we open up God's Word today. We're in a series called, Do You Believe in Miracles? Uh, the question presupposes that you know what a miracle is and If I'm being honest, I think that we've thrown flippantly the word miracle around enough to where we think a lot of things are miraculous happenings that are just highly unlikely probable happenings. There is a big difference between a miracle and something that is statistically unlikely. When we deal with miracles, we're not dealing with a statistic or a science, we're dealing with the hand of God. Uh, We're dealing with an intervention where God who created time as a boundary and a space chooses to step within it, and the laws that normally govern it are subject to the creator of the law, and therefore he has the right and the authority to do as he pleases, when he pleases, however he pleases. You don't come back from the dead, but sometimes Jesus determines that it's time for you literally in this moment to come back, therefore Lazarus, come out. Uh, blind eyes don't usually open without an operation, but Jesus, when he opened the blind eyes, did not surgically repair them as a doctor would do. Therefore, it's in the miracle category, not in the scientific advancement category. One of my favorite shows, this may surprise some of you, is a TV show called House. One of my favorite things that he would do is he would keep track of the moments where he got something right that he fixed, and in this group of things that he didn't understand that he just entitled God. When we speak of miracles, we're talking about God stepping into time and intervening and doing what only God can do. And the Christmas story is that of a miracle. It's God making right what humanity would never get right, what humanity could never fix. And so the question is pertinent and important to this season because we're in a season that celebrates the story of a miracle. Do you believe in miracles? Now, I, by nature doubt first, believe later. Anybody with me on that? I've been raised in a world that often told me things that were too good to be true. Therefore, I would hear people say things that they were professing to be true, and I would always greet them with skepticism and not sincerity and excitement. And so I, I, in college, fell in love with studying what is known as predictive prophecy within our Bible. In fact, one of the most strengthening things that has come of my faith is the predictive prophecy about the way in which the Messiah, Jesus, would be born, the way in which he would live, The miracles that he would do, the death that he would die, and the resurrection that would happen after his earthly death. These things found hundreds of years in advance, layering the improbability of any one of us being able to falsely assert or claim that we are Mother God, if you've been watching Netflix, or Father God, or a Messiah that has come. I'm not promoting TV shows, I'm just simply saying that there are a lot of people that have claimed to be king throughout history and none of them stood the time and the test of time as king but one, and his name is Jesus. Scripture 700 years in advance through a prophet named Isaiah said that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Layering that, 750 years in advance of the birth of Christ, Micah said in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem, the least likely place where only a few people were born annually a year would be the actual place that Jesus would come and be born. Again, it's not just that he was conceived of a virgin. It's that he was born in a specific place. It's that rulers would come and worship him from afar that were predicted hundreds of years in advance in the Psalms, like Psalm 72, verses 10 to 12. And verse 15 or isaiah chapter 60 verse 6 which predict not only that rulers from far off places would come to worship him at his birth but they would bring and it even mentions frankincense and gold in the text he's calling the gifts how many of you have been around for enough christmases that you can look at packages and you got a good sense of what's coming I had a great-granddad that we would take presents to when he was later in life, 95, 96, 97, 98, when he was, in his words, at the age that he could be naked, walk around and do whatever he wanted, when he wanted, say whatever he wanted, when he wanted, and no one could stop him. (laughs) And we would bring presents to him, and he would literally grab them, shake them, and go, it's a tie, they're chocolates, underwear, and he was always right. It was this weird sense. We would come some Christmases with new gifts and still find that he hadn't opened the gifts that he had predicted the year before because he already knew what it was and he didn't want them. Well, what we have in the Bible is the gifts of the far-off rulers that were coming to worship him being predicted hundreds of years in advance. Then even down to Hosea chapter 11, 1 that predicted that after he was born in Bethlehem that he would flee to Egypt, connecting the Old Testament story of what God had begun, foreshadowing what Jesus had come to do, all the way back into view when Jesus came. That Moses, who came to Pharaoh, who looked to a people who were in bondage and enslaved in sin and said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my... My my, my people go, huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Pharaoh said no. Plagues came. After several plagues, God broke his people free. I took some of you back to 90s student ministry, and others are just confused, but hang in with me. Uh, But God broke them free. They walked through on dry land. They became a people who had a possession, and God was their chief joy and Lord and leader. They rebelled from God. They wandered in the wilderness, but God came through because God was faithful, not because people are faithful. And now in the story, it's predicted in advance of his coming and his birth that Jesus would go back to Egypt and out of Egypt the Savior would come and he would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He would make a way to God instead of us and our own self-righteousness trying to ascend the hill to God and as a result there's reason for good hope in the miracle story of Christmas because God has come. I believe there's reason to believe. Now today I want to tell you about the coming kingdom. I want to talk to you about God's kingdom that is to come, that in some ways is here now, that is started at the birth of Christ and inaugurated in the return of Christ, and I want to tell you why it's such good news and a reason for hope in dark times today. We're going out of the book of Isaiah, just in case you weren't here a couple of weeks ago because you had the flu. Welcome back. You survived it. You now can go and lick door handles because you got immunity for at least 12 months, any of you got that? See, I want to live my life with the kind of confidence I have when I kick sicknesses behind. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? Like you, you come through it and all of a sudden you're like, I ain't afraid. Let's go in public. You want a high five? I'll give you a high five. You, you want a holy kiss? Come here. I'll give you a holy kiss. Don't do that. My, my point... My point is that, that kind of swagger that you get whenever you thought you were going to die. And just a few days earlier, uh, if you were a mom, you were vacuuming, cleaning the house, raising the kids. And if you were a dad, you were hiding under the bed crying, saying you were going to die and you needed someone to help you. But either way, you came out of it <laughs> to the other side. Love that confidence that you have. Well. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we went into the history of the book of Isaiah. And I don't want to bore you with that. You can find it on our website. But let me just briefly bring you into the context of Isaiah chapter 9. And if you have your Bibles, you can get ahead of me and go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. What's going on in Isaiah chapter 9? Well, there's a king in the southern kingdom named Ahaz. And Ahaz trusts in everything but God. He finds himself surrounded by enemies, people that want to literally fight with him, some to conquer him and some because he won't fight with them against those that are trying to conquer him. Now, we're in the the book of Isaiah, we're in a 200-year cold war with the family of God. They've been split since Solomon was king into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom had a capital in Judah. That's where Ahaz is king. That's where the remnant where God was going to bring the Messiah through the lineage and line of David was going to come through. And then you had the northern kingdom that wanted to do God's work their way. They wanted to manipulate uh, work of man and call it a move of God. But God gets no honor in us giving him lip service and really trying to take all the credit underneath all of the work, thinking that it's really us that's bringing the results that we're experiencing in our life. Some of you, you give Southern Kingdom assent to God with Northern Kingdom attitude in your spirit that thinks that you're the reason your life is the way that it is. That it's not been the hand of God, the power of God, the goodness of God, the work of God, the move of God that has made you what you are. But in some way, underneath your lip service to God, you believe that it's your good wisdom it's your good effort it's your smarts it's your skill it's your talent it's your responsibility that have positioned you in the position that you are in let me just go ahead and remind the saints in the room that you are what you are because God has done what he has done that everything you are that all of your righteousness that all of your goodness that all of your fruit it speaks to a good God that has worked in spite of you every step of the way There's no room in a saint's life for arrogance, for pride. It's detestable to him to watch a group of people that have seen the hand of God intervene in their life and then turn and give themselves praise instead of God praise. And just because you show up to church on Sunday and say some kind of half-hearted happy birthday to Jesus doesn't mean that you live a life that's honoring and surrendered to Jesus. He desires to be Lord and leader. He desires to be the foundation and the anchor. And for a lot of you, you are the northern kingdom. You want to point to God at the Grammy Award speech where you've written an entire album objectifying things of this world to be worshiped to God as God instead of God. And as a result of it, you give him lip service. Thanks God for Everything that dishonors God that I've just done. That wasn't in first service. Apparently that was a, something that needed to be said in second service. So Ahaz, king of the southern kingdom, has a king of the northern kingdom named Pekah. And a king of a kingdom that's a little bit north of the northern kingdom in Syria. That are being threatened by a big bully named Assyria. Are you still with me? So you've got to the far north, Assyria. Mean, military might, powerful, threatening and taking over everything. They just conquer everything always. Okay, You've got Syria to the south of Assyria who is being threatened and is up next on the pecking order of who's getting conquered today. To the south of Syria, you've got the northern kingdom and King Pekah who are also being threatened. So Syria's king comes to Pekah and says, hey, uh, we're, we're up next. If they take us out, which they will, you're up after that. So let's join together and let's go take on Assyria. And maybe we'll come out the other side of this because we joined our forces in might together. Maybe they'll leave us alone. Well, the king of the northern kingdom, Pekah, knows that they will not be able to take on Assyria with just the two of them. So he concocts a plan to go to the southern kingdom and say, hey, let's get together. And, and, and Ahaz wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't want to get into it. But instead of trusting in God as the southern kingdom, he sends a king's ransom and bribe to Assyria to attack the other two who now want to attack him because he won't join them. So they're surrounded by enemies. It's a dark time where the future looks anxious and worrisome. And in the midst of an anxious and worrisome future, Isaiah steps in to King Ahaz's quarters and says, Stop worrying about the people to the north. They're just smoldering smoke. They're all smoke, no fire. Isaiah chapter 7, in case you're wondering where I'm pulling this from. And he says to Ahaz, since you lack the faith to trust in God, ask of him a sign, anything. Make it as hard or as easy as you want. Ask him to show you that he is God. And Ahaz refuses in religious, pious activity. He's like, I I wouldn't test God. I wouldn't do that. But really what he's saying is, I don't trust God. I don't want to depend on God. So Ahaz gets a sign from God through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, The virgin will conceive and she will bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Two chapters later, two chapters later, we pick the story back up. Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine. You with me? Was that a decent history lesson? Excellent history lesson. Amen. You get uh, the sermon just got cut ten minutes shorter. You're gonna to get to lunch that much quicker. Isaiah chapter 9, it says, nevertheless, so in spite of the current state, in spite of the current situation, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Now, what is the darkness and despair that Israel's facing? All right, look back to the left in your Bible. Let's go back to chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 20, this is what's happening. Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. There's a serious problem that was going on in Israel's history that goes on in current history. The problem is we wanted to pick and choose which parts of God's word and which parts of God's character we wanted to adhere to, listen to, and apply to our life. And then we would disregard the parts of the Bible that were more difficult. Jesus dealt with this in his time. He said, it's easier to point out the speck in your brother's eye than it is to point out the plank the log in your eye. And for a lot of us because we have a pick and choose attitude when it comes to scripture, we choose to take part of God's word and hope that it's enough, ignoring and editing out the other parts of God's word, not knowing that when we do that, we walk in the path of fools and we end up in darkness, clueless and without a clue of how to get out of the darkness that we have found ourselves into when you can draw when you when you uh, do not adhere to God's instructions and teachings you contradict his word and are completely in the dark it says this they will go from one place to another weary and hungry and because they are hungry they will rage and curse their king and their god and they look will look to up to heaven how many of you have been here you cannot find satisfaction in anything so you're constantly running to the next thing but you're never enjoying the one thing that you're in you can't be present because you're always consumed with what will eclipse the present moment with something that is Greater in the future. And so you're constantly running around looking for something that would in a lasting way satisfy your soul and give peace to your soul. But what you find yourself doing is in an erratic life that's all gas, no brakes that's constantly stressed, that's constantly worried. And then what ends up happening? It says in the text, you complain against God and you complain against your kings. You begin to rebel against everyone around you. Well, it's there's no just no good church. There's plenty of good churches. There's plenty of good churches. It's just any good church requires you to be engaged in order for it to be fruitful and beneficial to you in the way that God created for it to be made. But for a lot of you, you partly commit to churches, but the second the preacher says something that points to the plank in your eye, you run from that church. You call that preacher, not a truth speaker, when he was actually doing you a service of speaking truth to you. And what you've actually become is what the proverb says is a fool running church to church, wanting to have your ears tickled with things that appeal to you instead of wanting to live a life that's corrected by the word of God and being called to holiness, which is what you've been actually made for and to live in. Oh, I'm preaching good. I encourage myself. You, know, encourage, you keep preaching. You preach it. You know, they don't to amen. They ain't gotta be here. Christmas is coming next week. More people will come. Just keep preaching. I Encourage. Silent Baptist up in here. I don't know what happened. They go from one place to another, weary and hungry. By the way, I was a Baptist, and because I am sort of and because they are hungry. They will rage and they will curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth. But wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and despair. I thought this would fix it. If we got here, if we achieved this, if we switched out these, I thought this would fix it. But a life apart from the leadership and lordship and truth of God only finds trouble and anguish as its companion. So then what does it go on to describe? Well, chapter 9 steps in and says, this is what God's kingdom, when it comes, is going to be like. Nevertheless, back with me, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. How many of you are tired of funerals? How many of you don't have on your New Year's resolution list more despair? I'm thinking this year we should just have lots of despair. We should live in despair. We should walk in despair. How many of you blame God for your despair? Your lack of allegiance and your hesitation to worship come from an experience of despair that have made you think that if God is good, His goodness doesn't flow to you. If God is good and great, He is opposing you, but he is not with you and for you. A lot of us go through difficult seasons of life, and what we need in those seasons is to be reminded of the future hope that we have that in the inauguration of God's kingdom, despair will be done away with. A few chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, it says this about the end of despair. He, this Messiah, will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken that he'll remove the tears Is repeated in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. When everything is done and set in the rightful place and God's reign comes fully and we now see it. There's no separation between heaven and earth. There's a new heaven and a new earth and we enjoy him forever. It says that the saints then will have their tears wiped away by the Father. Now I want you to think about that. The intimacy of it. Todd and I are buddies. We've experienced a lot of life together. We've done some ministry together. We've had a lot of fun together. But when Todd cries, my first instinct is not, hey, it would be weird, right? We can agree. Though we share an intimacy as brothers in Christ, there is not the same kind of intimacy that we share with Christ with each other. And what we have in the picture is that there are moments where you cry tears. Even as a tough, grown man, you go through seasons where you worry and you doubt. And you have those tears flow, and there is a timestamp put on those tears. There is a day where there will no longer need to be lamentation, because we will not mourn. We will not lament. We will not look at the world, even in the best of moments, and still realize it's still imperfect and broken because no good moment lasts. And in that moment, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah that is promised will wipe away the tears of the saints. How many of you are ready for a kingdom where there is no more despair? Despair is outlawed. Death is done and swallowed up fully. No more funerals. Anybody ready for that season of life? The verse one goes on to tell us that not only will it be the end of despair when the king fully comes, but... The land of Zebulun and Nephitilim, prideful, arrogant kingdoms, they will be humbled. You see, we look at this across nations, but we can view it within our own lives. Across nations, there are a lot of nations that have risen in power over time, and they've built strong kingdoms and infrastructure and governance that allowed at times, people to flourish under their governance, or at times, off the oppression of people, a few to flourish off of their governance. And, and in doing so, they build statues and monuments to the great people that have uh, established their earthly kingdoms and have helped their world uh, become big and prideful. It, it, it brings about mottos, one of my favorite movies from back in the day. It's probably not a good one, uh, so I'll leave the name out. But, but it's, uh, the guy would come up, he was a presidential candidate, and say, God bless America and no place else. And that kind of becomes the motto of these earthly, prideful kingdoms. Look at what we have done. Look at what we have built. It's all a tower of Babel. It's all an ascent of man trying to pound their chest about a lack of need for God. And there's a moment in history where you and I will come before the King of kings and Lord of lords and there will not be arrogance as an as a opportunity for response. In that moment, humility will be the only thing that we can do. prideful and arrogant nations will be humbled. You see, I believe that God's desire for you today would be that you would humble yourself under his mighty hand and you would experience his lordship, leadership, and goodness and greatness in your life. However, God doesn't make you do that because God's chief value is love. He leaves space for you to choose to love Him or to not love Him, but it doesn't give you the right to reign apart from Him or to reign as a God over your life forever. You've been given time. God has numbered your days. You will stand before Him. And those who are found in Christ, not because of their good merits and their good work and their uh, self-righteous endeavors, those who are found by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, they will be welcomed into eternal bliss, enjoying Jesus forever. And those who have in their own arrogance thought that they didn't need God or thought that they could be God or thought that they could build up a life that didn't need to depend on God will hear these scary warning words that come in Matthew chapter 25, depart from me for I never knew you. You see, God's plan for your life is humility. Humble yourself today before Him. Should you choose not to humble yourself before him. The only other option whenever you rebel against him is you find yourself by God's grace running down paths that lead to humiliation. I thought I could be God enough. I thought I could be good enough. I thought I could bring peace. I thought I could bring joy. I thought I could bring happiness in what you find in all of your endeavors by God's grace on this side of eternity or at the end of time when you stand before him. It's the humiliation of knowing that only God could bring what you thought you could build and acquire. What is the day of God's kingdom? Well, it's a day where despair is done away with. It's a day where the arrogant are humbled. Number two, number three, verse one goes on to tell us that Galilee will be filled with glory. Why does that matter? Because it says Galilee of the Gentiles in the text. You and I, many of us, were not born ethnically Jewish. God's promise to Abraham, though, is that he was going to bless him so that he would be a blessing to the nations. God's promise to the people of Egypt, whenever he broke them free with Moses, is that he would be their God, that they would be his people, and that he would bless them, that they would be a blessing to the nations. But what often happened in Israel's history is they took the blessing of God as a right to distinguish in further themselves away from the Gentile instead of a means to be a blessing to point to the goodness of the God who is going to come as Messiah to lay down his life so that all could be invited into his kingdom. Galilee will be filled with glory. That's the prophecy. The Gentiles will be let in. Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 speaks of the place where Jesus' ministry most frequented. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee. Isaiah chapter 1. It says in the coming of his kingdom, there will be a time in the future where Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and sea, it will be filled with glory. He comes through Galilee teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. And he he healed every kind of disease and uh, every uh, kind of illness. So what is the coming of God's kingdom? What is it going to be like? The end of despair. The prideful and the arrogant nations will be humbled. Galilee will be filled with glory. And then look at this. The light will illuminate the dark. What are we running around in apart from God? Look at most of what's going on in the world today. A whole lot of darkness. A whole lot of people that are thinking they're smart. Think about the political season we're about to go into. You're going to find a bunch of saviors that are about to go to Capitol Hill and fix what everybody else on Capitol Hill can't fix. But the last time I checked, there's never been a savior on Capitol Hill. I belong to a country, it's called the United States of America, I love this country, I'm grateful that God allowed me to be a part of this country, but let me be very clear to you, I am a kingdom citizen of a kingdom that is here and not yet, and before I have a country, I have a king, and I bend my knee and declare my dependency upon that king every single day of my life, I do not look to people in this country to be a light in darkness, I look to kingdom citizens who are involved in this country and all over the world to be the light in darkness that Jesus promised that they would be. I have put my hope in his light and not in the darkness of man to be less dark than the other darknesses of men. For a lot of us, we have no hope because we're looking for light in the dark that can't come from dark sources. The text says in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. John chapter 3 verse 19 goes on to say this, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world. Think about John's introduction in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was God in the beginning. And then it goes on a little bit further in chapter 1. And it says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. Oh, what a beginning. The Christmas story is the miracle of the light coming. But the problem is when the light came into the world, people loved the We like this idea of grace. We like this idea of a God that dies as our sacrifice, but a God that would meet us where we're at and then lead us to be transformed into something that we may not want to become. A a God that requires and and calls for rightly and justly the complete allegiance of our life to him. We, We like the idea of a God that saves us and leaves us unchanged, but the idea of a God who saves us and is Lord. There's the objection of man. This is what the text says: The light comes, but we loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. We were more consumed with manipulating God to give us what we truly desire, which was anything but relationship with God. So we would come to church, pray prayers, and do religious acts, but it was all so that we could get what we were really after, and it had nothing to do with more of Him. I take your silence as conviction. Because how many of you today came not to worship and serve God, but to manipulate him into some answer of prayer, into some intervention that you believe that if you do something the right way or come to the right place, that it would be done? No, no, no. The joy, the aim, is that you get the light. And even in seasons of darkness, you hold the light. You carry the light. His kingdom comes and brings light into the darkness. It's the fourth thing. The fifth thing, and the last one comes in verse 3. The people of God will become a great nation. He will make them a people. Now, I want you to think about this. Verse 3 lays it out. It says, You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest. And like warriors dividing the plunder, what started at the resurrection of Jesus with 120 or so people Hanging out in an upper room waiting has grown to a few billion around earth who profess to be followers of Jesus. The kingdom has been enlarged, God's kingdom has continued to grow. Uh, now, this is what the kingdom of God will be like, but how? Because this just sounds like good news. But we seem to be in a powerless state. How do I get from where I'm at in darkness to in this good news? Well, that's what the rest of these verses are about. I'll give them to you in rapid fire succession. You ready? Verse 4 says, the way that this will happen is the people will be set free. So the way that you move into this kingdom to where there is no more despair, to where there is a constant humility that allows a dependency that enables you to live a God walk out, is that... You will be set free from the bondage of, sl- of slavery that is to sin and the bondage of a mind that thinks it doesn't need God and is averse to God. Look at what it says. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The people of God will be set free. You have an accuser, an accuser this morning that has tried to convince you that you can't stand and lift your hands and lift your voice to God. Uh, An accuser that has tried to tell you that you can't come to church because you don't belong within the people of God this week. The arrogance of that is that there's a week that you could live in your mind that would be so good that you could earn the right to be in the presence of God around the people of God. It's a works-based way of thinking. But for a lot of you, you're in this mind where his accusations sting truer than the truth of God's word. So instead of identifying yourself as a saint in Christ Jesus you still identify yourself as a sinner that may not even know Jesus and it doesn't come from the fact that Jesus hasn't given you an assurance of salvation or that Jesus' blood isn't sufficient it comes from the fact that you've allowed the enemy's voice to be louder than the voice of truth in your life you see the second you became a follower of Jesus you are no longer defined by what you do but you are defined by whose you belong by whom you belong to You and I have become sons and daughters of the Most High King. The Bible says we've been seated in heavenly places, that we are now described by the past and the sin and the rebellion that we once walked in, but we now are defined by the fact that he looked at us and by his blood says you are mine. But for a lot of us, we live in the bondage of thinking that there's still something to prove and something to do. And we've forgotten the fact that when the accuser comes, what the accuser can't argue against, because he can argue against your faithfulness. He can argue against how good or bad you've been. He can bring up your past and your failure. But what he cannot argue against is that the blood has been shed and it has been spilled so that you could be forgiven people of God will be set free when God's kingdom. This is how he's going to do it. He's going to set you free, number one. Number two, how's he going to do it? There will be peace, not temporary peace, but eternal peace. It's a peace that would surpass understanding. It's not a peace that's realized whenever he comes. It's, it's a peace that can be held in the midst of war. It's the kind of peace that's described in the 23rd Psalm. It says, even, even though I'm surrounded by my enemies, you prepare a table before me in their presence. Oh, this is, good. have you have you read your Bible? Like, have you read, like, I, I just, I, I'm telling you, like, I, I love this thing. Because when, when the Holy Spirit is in you and you're like just enjoying and feasting on the Word, you start reading something in Isaiah, next thing you know, you're in the New Testament and you're talking about a peace that surpasses understanding, which then brings you back to the 23rd Psalm and the reflection of a guy named David who's surrounded by enemies, kind of like King Ahaz was, who was the great, great grandchild of David, surrounded by enemies. But he's got this peace. Ahaz is surrounded by enemies, but he's got no peace because God's kingdom hasn't come and taken residence in his life. How will he do it? Well, he'll set you free from your accuser, he'll set you free from sin. He then will bring his spirit so that there's a residing peace. That is realized internally before it's seen fully in the inauguration of Christ's kingdom externally. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. How will he do this? He then will send a baby. This is the profoundness of the text. There's enemies that are great and mighty. There are armies surrounding Ahaz, and God's like, I've got a solution. And Ahaz perhaps is like, what's the solution? as the armies are bearing down on him, I'm gonna send a baby. This is how God works. He takes the weakest of things and puts his power within them in a way that we do not often understand. He takes the foolish things and he confounds the wise. So his plan in the midst of Ahaz being surrounded is to point to a future event where a Messiah would come as a baby so that Ahaz in this moment would have hope that in being part of that story God would protect him now man how many of you because you've lost sight of the narrative in the story of what God is doing are filled with worry are filled with anxiety all because you've forgotten the fact that he promised that he would come again How many of you are missing the present hope and peace of the Messiah? because you've forgotten the reality that he reigns and he rules. How how many of you are sweating today because you may not get it right in the prayer that you're about to pray before God and you're worried that, that, that whatever you're facing is gonna be too daunting and too challenging and whatever's gonna come on the other side of that door and you're thinking you've gotta be eloquent all because you've forgotten that you have a high priest and right now your high priest according to Romans chapter eight is uttering the things that you don't even know to groan to God in the ear of the Father. How many of you have forgotten what you have presently in Christ Jesus and in the future in his work and in his story, and it is robbing you of the peace that we speak of in the season. Oh, man A baby son will come, and the government will rest on his shoulders, <laughs> and his name will be Wonderful Counselor. I'm all for you going to a counselor and talking through your problems. But man, if you don't know the wonderful counselor, there's no human being that's going to replace him. Huh? How many of you need some counsel? If you do, let me, let me just encourage you with the truth. That not in a hurried way or a drive through way that you've been invited to sit at the feet of Jesus because the blood of Christ has been spilled and now by the Holy Spirit you've been brought into heavenly places so that you can be in the throne room of God. So much so that Jesus could tell us that if the Spirit is in us and we're in the throne room of God we have the Father's ear that we don't need to worry about what we're going to say or how we'll speak. Because in the moment when it's time to speak, God will give us the very words that we need. I mean, th- think about the kind of dependency and dance this is. Some of you are worried so much about next week, and then God's like, would you just sit with me? Would you just sit with me? Would you just let me be me? Come on. How will he do this? A baby will come, and the kingdom of God will be established through him. He will rule with fairness for all eternity. And number five, God the Father, and this is what the text says at the end of Isaiah 9 7, God the Father will make this happen. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Mm. Many of us look and we see a broken world. Things don't work right even when they should work right. And sometimes when you do things wrong, it seems like you've taken a shortcut and they act and get right. So why would I even focus on holiness whenever a lack of holiness is what built the life that I'm living today? Why would I focus on God's way whenever my way seems to be comfortable and controllable? Why would I surrender that kind of control? Why would I yield that whenever everything still seems to be broken? Well, what we're in is this concept called here but not yet. You see, Jesus came as Emmanuel, fully God and fully man. And he experienced the full human experience. He was tempted. He was tired. He was hungry. He was weak. But by the Spirit of God, he lived in complete obedience to the Father so that he was found worthy as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinful people who in their weariness and in their fatigue rebelled from God and didn't trust in him. Therefore, Jesus was given the ability to look at sinful people who in their weariness and their fatigue have rebelled and turned from God. And he could say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Therefore, his ability to look and say, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So he has the right to extend the invitation because he was the substitute as Emmanuel that brought about the kingdom that opened up the door so that you and I, by grace through faith, could know that our eternity is sealed with Christ forever. And that at, on this side of eternity, we get the opportunity to live as citizens of God's kingdom today so that we would know his peace inside, even if we experience turmoil on the outside. So that we know his life inside, even if we experience a life of turmoil on the outside. This is his invitation to you that you would allow him to be God with you, your Messiah, your Lord, your leader. I wanna welcome some of you today who are in the absence of life and communion with God home. In the next few minutes before baptism, our prayer team's gonna come forward. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I wanna invite you today to experience that relationship and that change. The way has been paved by a sacrifice in his blood. The invitation has been extended. Heaven is open. God's kingdom is here. And he's inviting you to become his sons and daughters. So if you do need to become a follower of Jesus, we invite you in this moment to come forward with our prayer team and allow Jesus to step in as your Lord, Savior, and leader. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand.